Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. So far in our series focused on D-Day, we've talked about the paratroopers that jumped in behind enemy lines in early morning hours of June 6th, 1944, and we've gone up and down Omaha and Utah beaches. But right in the middle sat an objective that would go down in history as one of the most daring missions of the war. We're talking, of course, about the Battle of Point Duhok. So today we have the story of Lieutenant Colonel James Rudder and the men of the 2nd Ranger Battalion. Now, Point Duhok sat on the coast between the Omaha and Utah beaches. It's four miles from Omaha, eight miles from Utah, right between the two beaches that the Americans were responsible for. And it was strategic. It had an observation post that, could, that had a great field of vision out into the English Channel in a couple different directions. It also could overwatch just about all of Utah Beach. A little harder to see just based off of the terrain to see back towards Omaha. But it was so important that the Germans placed a series of 155-millimeter howitzers at this location, at Point Duhok. And this is pretty far forward. You usually see artillery placed further inland because you don't want it to be overrun early, right? You want the artillery to be in place once the troops come ashore and you can fire down onto the beaches. But Point Duhok, you know, pushed out into the sea a little bit, a little point into the English Channel, and it had 100-foot cliffs dropping down into the water. So as the Germans were putting this position together, it was considered that any assault from the sea was not feasible. It was a suicide attempt. So any attempt to seize that battery and overrun that battery would have to come from inland. So it's a, you know, there's a couple sides to this. On the one hand, relatively easy to defend, right? Because the enemy, the enemy, the allies have to come from inland. They can't come from the three sides that kind of stick out into the sea. But at the same time, if you're defending that, you're kind of trapped, right? If you're a German soldier on Point Duhok and you have to turn your back to the sea and wait for the allies to come attack, you're kind of stuck. Where are you going to go? Now, it was decided by the Allies that Point du Hoc had to be taken. So it was a critical location for the Germans, rightfully so. It could range both Omaha and Utah beaches, and the observation posts were top-notch. And the Allies knew this as well. So recognizing that it had to be taken not later in the day on D-Day and not you know D-plus-1 or D-plus-2, because those batteries at Point du Hoc could you know, knock apart the entire landings on Omaha or Utah. It had to be taken early. But if it was going to be taken early, you couldn't go overland across Omaha or certainly through Utah, eight miles down the shore. You had to scale the cliffs. And that mission would fall to the newly formed Ranger Battalions, newly formed 1942. So they've been around for a couple of years at this point. An elite unit that's specially trained for missions just like this. At 4.45 in the morning on June 6, 1944, the Rangers start loading into their LCAs. These are the British landing craft, a little bit different than the commonly used American Higgins boats. The British craft are a little more well protected. There's a little overhead cover to protect them as well. And they start circling out at sea in preparation for their one-hour trip to Point Du Hawk. Now think about that. The sea on June 6th, 1944 was choppy. It was rough. 
and there were people getting sick left and right. And knowing that you're going into a mission that many would consider suicidal. In fact, somebody that was set to lead this mission a couple days prior was talking about it in such a negative light that he was removed and Rudder took his place. Lieutenant Colonel Rudder took his place. There were a lot of people that thought this Ranger unit would just get wiped out entirely. So imagine that that's your objective. These guys knew what they were getting into. There wasn't a secret. I mean, it doesn't matter what the level of German resistance is up on those cliffs. You're going to climb a cliff and come face to face with the enemy. As they're getting ready to do that, they have to sit out at sea for over an hour, rocking around left and right, losing their footing, getting sick, vomiting everywhere. Think about that. An hour wait to walk into a battle like this. Now, the design for taking Point to Hawk was that three companies, D, E, and F, of the 2nd Ranger Battalion would assault the cliff. They were scheduled to land at 6.30, along with the rest of the first wave on Omaha Beach. And they would send a signal, if successful, to bring in some reinforcements. So essentially, if they had established a beachhead, they would send out a signal to Lieutenant Colonel Schneider waiting with eight Ranger companies at sea. And if he got the signal, radio... And I believe there's a flare signal as well. He would divert to Point Du Hawk and the now 11 Ranger companies would continue to take that objective and push inland. If that signal didn't happen, then Schneider would divert and move towards Omaha Beach to reinforce the main landings. That's the plan. But we're talking about Omaha Beach. We're talking about D-Day. Very little went according to plan. And as we know, on June 6th, the high winds, the chopping seas, the chaos of many people going into battle for the first time, and just an operation this size, things are going to go wrong. And as the landing craft with Rudder's men starts to approach the shoreline, they realize they're not actually coming up on Point Du Hawk. They're coming up on Point de la Perse, which I probably mispronounced once more. But remember from our last episode, that's the area that Captain Gorenson and Charlie Company is set to attack. And you can understand from a distance, they're going to look a little similar. There's some fog, there's some cloud cover, there's explosions everywhere, and the seas are choppy. Easy mistake to make. But one of the reasons this happened is because the current and the winds were pushing people down. So fortunately for the Allies, they recognize, Rudder and his men recognize this mistake and start steering back towards Point Du Hawk. But there's a problem. The, one of the reasons they were pushed so far off course was because the current was pulling them in that direction. So they may have recognized the problem, but now to get back on track, they have to go into the current. They're not going to meet their timelines. In fact, Rudder and his men wouldn't land at Point Du Hawk until 7.10 that morning. And remember... The reinforcements were set to get the success or failure signal by 7 o'clock. And if they didn't get it, they went to Omaha. That means that the eight Ranger companies, roughly 600 additional soldiers to reinforce the 225 at Point Du Hawk. So to go from 225 to 825, instead, Rudder and his men are going to have to figure it out themselves. Now, this is one of those stories that you come across in military history where you know, even if Schneider and the eight Ranger companies reinforce Point Du Hawk right out the gate, I think this is still a crazy story. I mean, what these guys have to do to get up the cliffs and to fight and what they accomplished that day would have been crazy with 800. 
with eight, with I guess 11 Ranger companies total. That would have been a story. That would have gone down in history. But of course, with Schneider heading to Omaha Beach, instead we have a story at Point du Hawk with Rudder and 225 men. Now, as they start nearing the, well, let me talk about the naval gunfire, kind of the fire support piece here for a minute. This was something that I think in large part we can say was a failure on D-Day. It wasn't the the fault of the Navy. I think given the option, they would have would have preferred a much longer barrage. But as we've talked about before, there was an element of surprise that we were going for. And the Allies couldn't sit offshore and hammer the coast. This is different in the Pacific. You know, as the Allies are coming up on, say, Saipan or, or Iwo Jima or or even Guadalcanal, well, maybe Guadalcanal is not a good example. The Allies could afford to shell a location for a period of time because they had relative air superiority and could stop the Japanese from any significant reinforcements, right? So you could you could dock your armada off the coast of a Japanese island or a Japanese-held island and spend three, four, five days shelling every position in sight because reinforcements aren't really an option, you know? That wasn't the case in Normandy. That wasn't the case for D-Day because while the allies held general air superiority, there was still a significant risk that the Germans could reinforce the landing beaches. And if they did that at the right time, it could push the allies right back into the sea. So we really wanted to gain that foothold to be able to beat back what was expected to be substantial German panzer counterattacks over the coming days. And the less time we give the Germans to recognize what's happening, the better chance we have of holding on. Now, the Allies also had to land, wanted to land, I should say, at low tide, exposing most of the beach obstacles, but at a rising tide so that the landing craft wouldn't get stuck when they came ashore. If it was a, you know, a receding tide, it was possible the landing craft would land and then the tide is out and now you've got a landing craft stuck on Omaha Beach. It kind of reduced the window to the early morning hours. And next thing you know, the Navy only has about an hour to service targets up and down the Normandy coastline. But there was, but that was incorporated. So what we couldn't do for days and days on end was designed to go up until the very last minute. So for instance, on Omaha and Utah and Point du Hawk, the Navy was going to shell until 625. That last shell be going off 625. There's five minutes room for air before the troops hit the beaches. And the idea there is that if you are a German defender sitting in one of these bunkers, even if you're not killed or wounded or your position is not destroyed, you just took an hour of shell fire on top of your position. You're disoriented. Maybe your weapons are out of, you know, maybe your weapons are having issues. There, there's dirt, they're clogged. There's any number of things that you have to get back on track before you can really get into the fight. And you'll have less than five minutes before the Americans land. Well, again, the timeline is going to come into play here at Point du Hawk because that shell fire stopped at 625. But Rudder and his men wouldn't land for almost 45 minutes later. Five minutes is a lot to kind of regain your senses after that type of concussive bombardment. 45 minutes? It's a different story. The Germans at Point du Hawk were ready. Now, they start firing on Rudder and his men as they come within range. But I have to wonder... The German defenders at Point du Hawk, whose defenses are all facing inland because common sense, they're not going to come up these cliffs. That's suicide, remember? I wonder if I wonder how long it took them to recognize this is an actual assault 
at Point du Hawk versus some landing craft that went in the wrong direction, right? I mean, that happened all up and down the Normandy coast where, where Higgins boats or LCAs would land way off target. I just wonder if you're a German defender looking out at sea, do you recognize this as a actual assault on your position or is it some, some landing craft got lost, ended up in your field of fire? Anyways, once Rudder and Rudder's men and their craft hit the shore, they run to the base of the cliff. There's a little bit of an overhang in some areas where they can take cover from the Germans firing down from above. The beach is about 300 yards wide and 50 yards deep. It's not big compared to, well, especially compared to Omaha or Utah or any of these other beaches. It's pretty short, pretty narrow. But if they get right up against the wall, there is the opportunity to kind of hide from German direct fire. That, of course, doesn't resolve everything. The Germans are dropping grenades down now that the Americans are huddled beneath. But it's hard for them to shoot straight down. Again, this this wasn't the planned defense. So there's some barbed wire. There's some positions for the Germans to shoot down. But it's very, very hard to shoot you know 90 degrees straight down a cliff and have any sort of effectiveness. But if we transition back over to what the Rangers, what Rudder and his men are dealing with, They have to get up these cliffs, 100-foot cliffs, right, under fire, people shooting down from directly above. To do that, they have ropes, rope ladders, and ladders, and kind of mixed effectiveness here. Now, this wasn't a surprise. It wasn't like on June 5th as they're sailing across the English Channel, Rudder got the order, hey, you guys are going to have to scale some cliffs. They knew it a ways in advance, and they'd been training on ropes and climbing for some while. Like I mentioned, this was an elite unit within the Army. So they figured out what worked and what didn't work through trial and error over a lot, a lot of training. These men were not climbing climbing rope ladders for the first time on June 6th. And what they'd landed on in terms of a couple techniques were grappling hooks. Grappling hooks would be fired from a couple mechanisms. Some of the landing craft had kind of rockets that would send the grappling hooks up. And then there were some handheld models that would do the same. Shoot a grappling hook up, shoot a grappling hook up over the side of the cliff, hope it connects to something. Not all of them did. Um, and then you've got, you know, an anchor. You've got an anchor for um, the ropes, rope ladders, you start climbing up. But there's a problem. It's combat. Things don't go as planned. The choppy seas, the water hitting the boats and hitting the ropes meant that these ropes were incredibly waterlogged when it came time to fire them. And sometimes they weighed two or three times as much as they had when they were fired in dry conditions. So some of these ropes they're expecting to go, you know, 100 plus feet up to hit the top of the cliff are barely going halfway at some points. There were some other, now that's not all of the grappling hooks. There were a handful that were able to get up top, but we also had some ladders. The Rangers had some ladders from local fire departments in England, you know, the extending ladders you're thinking about on a fire truck. And they attached those to amphibious trucks, ducks that would come ashore, drive inland, you know, the 50 yards or whatever it might be, park. And then you've got a ladder like from a fire truck and you can climb up. The beach was in such a condition that those amphibious vehicles couldn't really get ashore. So ladders are out of the question. Of course, once some of the ropes that do catch up top, the Germans are all too willing to cut the rope one less way up, but enough stayed enough, got up there enough connected enough to where they could start climbing up. 
And there was one other area that little helped, or one other little area that helped. The naval gunfire knocked down a bunch of rubble in one area. It was about 40 feet tall. So the rangers had some other ladders and other ropes that they could use in that one area to where they didn't have to scale 100 feet. They could only scale, they only had to scale about 60, 50, 60 in some areas. Nonetheless, as the Germans are peering down the side, dropping grenades, killing the Americans beneath, the rangers start to climb. Now, how do you go about doing this? When there's people standing above, shooting down, your hands are occupied. You're not climbing a rope ladder and shooting at the same time. The rangers on the beach that hadn't yet started to climb would step back. Step back into range of the Germans firing down from above, but to a point where they could fire over the heads of their fellow rangers climbing, essentially suppressing the Germans up above. So if you're going to stick your head out over to try to shoot down, you're risking getting shot in the face. So the rangers would step back, provide suppressive fire while their buddies climbed. Now, it's a serious climb. These guys are just like we'd see on all the beaches. They're waterlogged. They, they are covered in sand and mud and all it takes. I don't know if anybody's ever climbed a rope after one other person with muddy boots has climbed a rope. That's a whole different beast. So these guys are weighed down with extra equipment. They're tired. The adrenaline's pumping. The ropes are already wet. They're maybe not anchored very well. And they're climbing up slippery rope, slippery rope ladders with extra equipment. And let's not forget what they're climbing up for. As soon as they peer their head over the top, they're going to face down German fire. Now, eventually Rudder and his men, enough of them make it up towards the top. And right when they peer over the, the ledge, they're met with German machine gun fire, small arms fire, and more grenades. Now think about this. You've heard the term, you know, your back's against the wall. Isn't this that just to an extreme? I mean, you can't go back down. Your buddies are climbing up. There's no, there's no way down. You die. You fall over backwards, you die. They have to charge forward. It's crazy. The, the phrase that I have in my mind is being thrown into the arena like a gladiator. Like, this is it. Fight or die. Now, to the Rangers' benefit, that naval gunfire that lifted when it was supposed to at 625, right? It wasn't the Navy's fault that, that Runner and his men weren't there um, right, at the, uh, right at the exact H hour. That naval gunfire and some of the bombing that had been done in the weeks leading up to this had left massive craters at Point du Hoc. In fact, if you go visit Point du Hoc today, you can see kind of the devastation that was done. Many of those remain. Those craters provided some level of cover for the Rangers as they came over the cliff. Now, once they got over the cliff into these um, into the craters to get a little bit of protective fire, Rudder broke his men out into a couple different sections with different objectives. Those objectives were tied to the destruction of the guns at Point du Hoc. Now, as they're starting to move out for this objective, it kind of dawns on some of the Rangers and Rudder. They haven't heard these guns firing. I mean, this should be, it should be deafening at this point, right? The landings by this point, by seven o'clock, seven ten, when they hit the beach at Point du Hoc, the landings have been underway at Omaha for a half hour. Same at Utah. Shouldn't those guns be blazing away? But they're not. Something's wrong. As soon as the Rangers start to approach, you know, through fire, assaulting enemy positions and getting near these gun emplacements, they realize the guns have been moved. And in their place, set telephone poles. 
So if you think about the reconnaissance photos that would have been taken leading up to D-Day, they were all pretty high level. And, you know, if you think about a photo, a grainy photograph from a fast moving aircraft, you know, over Omaha Beach, or over Point du Hawk, it's easy to think that a telephone pole sticking out of a casemate at Point du Hawk, where you're expecting artillery pieces to be, is in fact an artillery piece. Now, even if the guns aren't there, it's still a strategic location for the Germans. I mean, just the observation point alone with that field of view over Utah Beach could have been devastating. So when possible, as the Rangers continue to push through, they move inland towards a secondary objective. That secondary objective is going to be to block and to set up a roadblock on an east-west running road right behind the beaches, kind of connecting Omaha, Utah, Point du Hawk, and more. And as they're doing that, two Rangers, First Sergeant Leonard Lommel and Staff Sergeant Jack Coon come across a couple guns. I say they're missing guns, but really they're the guns from Point du Hawk that were just moving a little ways inland. And around 9 o'clock that morning, they take a few thermite grenades, destroy the guns, as well as a few ammunition stockpiles nearby. They move back to friendly lines to relay this information to Colonel Rudder, who is in the process of setting in his lines for the expected German counterattacks that are about to come. Now, we talked about the risk of being a German defender on Point du Hawk, right? You, as much as the Rangers had their backs against the wall when they were coming, coming inland, if roles are reversed and the Allies came from inland, the Germans had their backs against the wall. And that's the position Rudder and his men find themselves in by midday on June 6th. After they've cleared out most of the German resistance on Point du Hawk, they have to set in a defense because they don't have the strength to push towards Omaha or push towards Utah. They have to hold on. And they're expecting pretty substantial counterattacks. Throughout the day, they brave mortar fire, field artillery, snipers that's taking their toll on the 2nd Ranger Battalion. I mean, they're trapped. They're stuck in one spot. And at 2300 that night on June 6, 1944, three major counterattacks kick off. They push Rudder and his men back quite a ways to the point where some Rangers that are forward or a little ways forward have to hide. They can't get back to the bulk of Rudder and his men for protection that night. And by morning of June 7th, they're down to fewer than 100 men capable of fighting. I mean, that's, that's over 50% that can no longer help repel a counterattack. Now they've asked for reinforcements and things like some ammunition and some food had come ashore at Point du Hawk, but this is one piece of this bigger, you know, massive battle going on all up and down the Normandy coast. And while Rudder and his men took a beating and need reinforcements. They need reinforcements at Omaha. We need reinforcements in parts of Utah. We need to push inland to link up with the 82nd and the 101st. And we need more men everywhere. Everywhere needs to be reinforced. Everywhere needs to be rebuilt. So Rudder made a call for reinforcements. It wouldn't be coming, at least not on June 7th. They braved more counterattacks that day. And by the 8th, finally, Coming across inland from Omaha Beach, they're relieved. And at that point, the 2nd Ranger Battalion or the three companies from the 2nd Ranger Battalion under Lieutenant Colonel Rudder had suffered suffered over 75% casualty rate with 77 out of 225 men killed. Now for his leadership on this suicide mission, leading the men up the cliff, directing them back to Point Du Hawks that could actually accomplish this mission, getting them ashore, getting them up the cliffs, climbing the cliffs himself, and leading the charge to clear out Point Duhawk, Lieutenant Colonel James Rudder was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. 
He would survive the war and retire a major general in 1967. Now, we've spent a good amount of time here focused on the European theater of operations, which, look, D-Day, D-Day is probably my favorite time in American military history to study. So I got hung up. I wanted to just keep going and going and going. And, and this is my little caveat that will probably come back here at some point. But we can't forget about what's going on in the Pacific at this point. And that's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.